Allie. And I'm Sarah. And you're listening to Dead Cat on the Line, an internationally focused true crime podcast. Where two very anxious people overanalyze everything. No cats or harms in the making of this podcast. Anyway, don't go to an island is what I think we can take from this. Um, as a British person, I can confirm. Never, never live on an island. After a while, um, it seems to do something to people's brains. <laughs> and they do things like vote foolishly. <laughs> and... I mean, I, I don't think you have to be living on an island for that to apply. <laughs> <laughs> speaking so, as an american speaking an american and a brit have a podcast we're all both just like anytime politics come up we're both there like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i see i see you i start i start looking around instinctively for the nearest bottle of vodka I'm like, <laughs> my body's like you know what we need right now you know what'll make this better what Alcohol. Alcohol is what will make it better. Fermented, Absolutely, yes. Like fermented potato is what will make it better. <laughs> that will fix it. Well, I mean, has living on a different island affected you at all? Now I mean, that you're not in the UK? I mean, I mean, this is the thing, this is the thing that I think well is like, um, a lot, some people don't know, um, Japan is actually a collection of islands that are grouped together. So um, you have like the main island, um, Honshu, you have Hokkaido, you have Kyushu, mm-hmm. and then you have um, Okinawa, and I cannot remember, I think there's another one. Once again, there is no way for us to ever find this out. Absolutely not. not. Anywhere. Um, but yeah, so I think I don't know. I mean, there's better food. So, sorry, England. There's, there's better food. There's better food. I'm not gonna dispute that. Like, like white white British cuisine is is not what it could be. <laughs> just let's just leave it at that. It's not what it could be. It's not the pinnacle of humanity's achievement. <laughs> As a species. So, I think we just said it is your turn. Yes. It's your turn to talk. So, it's not so much like an actual case as it is an event that happened to have some really shady stuff that happened with it. Um, So it's like not technically criminal, but it's criminal adjacent. There are like some criminal aspects, like people are definitely getting criminal repercussions out of it. Yes. We'd love but, some criminal repercussions. Yeah. <laughs> but the overall thing is not like a case. There was this really big event that happened recently in like the past couple of years. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's the uh, the Fire Festival. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's been really popular recently, remembering it because of the two new documentaries that have come out on Netflix and Hulu. And 
Have you seen both of them? I have. Yes, I watched both of them in preparation for this whole thing. The Hulu one is good. Uh, it has a lot of interesting information. I think both of them together give you kind of a an overall sense of what went down. I remember personally watching the actual shitstorm that resulted from this whole event. I possibly was on the fire festival like hashtag on twitter refreshing repeatedly (laughs) because i was in the middle of my undergrad which was or like my last year of it which is incredibly depressing and Mm -hmm. it made me feel better because of the sheer like schadenfreude of it it was a lot of entertainment for those of us who did not actually go (laughs) yeah yeah i feel that so many memes truly i feel like that's got a it's it's a gotta be a peak cultural moment of the twenty tens. I'm pretty sure it's gonna go down in history books as a cultural moment. I'm ready. But anyway, so all this to say the entertainment factor and memes and all that stuff, it does make a lot of people forget that yeah, there were some actual crime elements that ended up in this, which is what I'm going to be talking about. For those of you who don't know, the Fire Festival was basically the brainchild of this guy named Billy McFarland with the support of famous rapper Ja Rule. And before we take a look into actually what occurred with the event, I want to spend some time talking about this guy, Billy McFarland, and how Firefest came about. Billy McFarland, that's such a weird name, I'm sorry. It's just so silly. Yeah, and then comes in young Billy McFarland. (laughs) (laughs) He's arrived at the dance uninvited. (laughs) Oh, that does sound very accurate, though, considering the kind of guy he is. So, he was actually born in 1991. Mm -hmm. He's uh, three years older than me. He was born the year my sister was born. So strange to think about. So his parents were both real estate investors, mm-hmm. uh, and he was raised in the Short Hills section of Milburn, New Jersey. Short Hills is a apparently a popular commuter residence for people working in New York. So it's a lot of people who can't afford to live in New York, but need to live close enough to get into it, which means despite them not being able to afford New York, which... You have to be like a millionaire to afford New York. Let's be real. People who live in New York can't afford to live in New York. Uh, Yes. But so Short Hills is actually a pretty affluent neighborhood. And it was ranked by Bloomberg as the fifth richest place in the country in this past year. So I feel like his whole thing of being a self-made American, because I feel like that's how he sells himself. Yeah. First and later on is kind of, yeah (laughs) yeah a little bit he definitely had some privilege going into it so he he definitely grew up well and i know you haven't seen hulu's documentary but if you have it's called fire fraud Mm -hmm. so there's a statement from billy's mom talking about how he was able to scuba dive at the age of 10 And scuba diving so regularly is really expensive. So he definitely had money growing up. He was living the good life. 
that's what I'm, you know, I think that's going to come up. That's going to have to come up with my parents when the next call them is like, where were my, where were my scuba lessons? Yes. The child, quite frankly. I feel very I feel neglected. What kind of, what kind of cultural wasteland did I grow up in? <laughs> what kind of parents did I have? <laughs> it's not like they fed me or gave me a house or anything. If you really loved me, you would have given me scuba classes. <laughs> Never mind the fact that I'm terrified of the ocean. Yeah, you are actually, aren't you? I wish to get I, I am, like, absolutely <laughs> terrified of it. If I can't see the shoreline, I freak out. So, he grew up having scuba lessons. He lived in this really nice neighborhood. So, he obviously grew up with privilege, which I think probably had a large influence on how he became in later life. Oh, yeah. I can see yeah. that. An interesting thing that also came out of the Hulu documentary is that Billy himself states that his first experience with business was in second grade when he fixed a broken crayon for a dollar. Non-Americans and people who don't have our grade system. I was about uh, to ask, so thank you so yeah. much. Uh, so he was, he was around seven or eight years old at the time. Okay, okay. So... He apparently started his own crayon-fixing business when he was seven or eight, and apparently he advertised this service to the rest of the school through their internet-connected typewriters, which were called AlphaSmart. I have no idea what these are. You know what? Um, this is it. Google exists. <laughs> it's happening. But, I mean, the point that they had, like, internet-connected typewriters... That was not in my normal public school. That has to be a rich people thing. This is a, this is a rich people school. Okay, Alpha Smart, yep, was a brand of portable, battery-powered, word-processing keyboards manufactured by Neo Direct Incorporated, formerly Renaissance Learning Incorporated. Oh my god, wait for this. No, wait. Manufactured by, number one, Neo Direct Incorporated, formerly, number two, Renaissance Learning Incorporated, Formerly number three, Alpha Smart Incorporated. <laughs> formerly number four, Intelligent Peripheral Devices Incorporated. Oh my god. Who are you running from, NeoDirect? <laughs> You're not doing a good job running. Yeah, and they were like discontinued in 2013. Uh, um, they're horrendous so. looking, by the way. So you're not missing out. Okay, good. So yeah, he advertised his crayon fixing business through it. And the way he did that is that he figured out the administrative password for all the typewriters and then made it so that whenever these things were turned on, they'd say, for your broken crayons, basically come and find me. And that's a quote. And then he signed his name. To fix your broken crayons, come and find me. Can you imagine that coming up on your little typewriter? You're like, what is it, eight years old? You're just trying to mind your own business. Trying to like get on there to do one of your assignments and you just get this message, for your broken crayons, basically come and find me. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure there's a creepypasta that goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> the like teachers and administration would have to go and fix all of this because he broke into their system to do this. I think that's a pretty good sign that he's about to do some criminal stuff there. <laughs> he's eight. <laughs> this is a warning sign. 
feel like he's a warning sign. I'm like, he's he's eight. This is being an eight-year-old. Okay, yeah, but there's, there's normal eight-year-old stuff, and then there's breaking into the administrative system for all of this technology. Ali, you just don't have a sense of adventure when it comes to... You've just got to dream a little bigger. Obviously. <laughs> I'm yes. saying, like, I'm saying, you know, attempt at achieving the American dream, and you're saying criminal enterprise, and I feel those are basically the same thing. I mean, at that age, essentially, yes. Well, he makes another attempt at 13 years old, which... This was around 2004, so right when the internet was starting to become a thing and businesses were starting to get on there and all that. Well, at the age of 13, he apparently started up a real company that acted as an online outsourcing business, matching clients with designers. So what were you doing at 13, Ali? What were you doing at 13? I think I was playing video games and downloading music on LimeWire I was and reading, yeah. getting into anime. I was reading a lot of Oscar Wilde and also fan fiction. You know, that's valid. Twilight that's fan really fiction. Valid. Twilight fan fiction. <laughs> I think this was around the time I discovered fan fiction through Twilight fan fiction as well. That was an, that was an era. That was an era. Anyway, mm-hmm. let's yeah. So he he was outsourcing businesses to designers and he says he had three people from India who worked for him at this time. And apparently whenever he answered the phone for this business, he'd fake a deeper voice so that no one would know how old he was. This is home this is the plot of home alone, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. It's like the pizza scene. Well, like, the pizza guy comes and he just has the recording of the of the, the movie with the guy's voice and plays that instead. Yes, that is exactly what this is, except he's doing it to run a business. Once again, what, we, what were we doing at 13? What were we do- Where was my business at 13? Didn't what have was enough thinking? moxie. Exactly. But yeah, so he he had this business going and... I mean, that's just another sign that he's about to become a con man to me. Like, he's running this business secretly. I don't think even his parents knew. The businesses he was working for absolutely did not know that he was 13. And he was taking advantage of the system. Like, he was working the system. These these businesses needed online assistance, and he was taking full advantage of it, which, real smart, but also considering how he becomes later in life, it makes complete sense. But Home Alone has the same basic concept, and it's a beloved American classic. But, like, in real life, you gotta watch out for that. You're, like, sitting me down, you're like, Sarah, sometimes, real life... Is not like the movies. <laughs> anyway, so he had this business all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. And after high school, he began attending Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, uh, where he studied computer engineering. I'm going to tell you, this did not last long for him. So the university had a business pitch competition uh, for which he created an online ad platform 
he called spling. Sorry, sorry, can you say that word? I assume it was a word. Can you say that word again, please? It's not actually a word. It's a word he made up, so... Like, okay, so to- Shakespeare totally made up words, but yeah. also... But it's called spling. S-P-L-I-N-G. Spling sounds like some wannabe, hip, 70s euphemism. That's what, it, that's what it sounds like to me. You're not entirely wrong. Like, I haven't decided what kind of sex yet, but like a type. So, online ad platform. He ended up dropping out of college after only nine months mm-hmm. in order to work on this platform full time. Okay. Clearly it didn't catch on because I had never heard of it before looking into his background. I think he might have given up on it around 2013. I think the name. I think it's all in the name. The name was terrible. I'm going to get a bunch of comments being like, I quite like the name Spling, actually. Your opinion is valid, but it's also wrong. Okay. I mean, if you've ever if you've ever watched a very Potter musical, it's the, well, the medallion says that decision is wrong. But anyway, so... um. It didn't catch on. He dropped out of college basically for nothing. It was supposed to be this kind of Google Plus type thing, which that also did not catch on. No surprise. When I say I think he might have given up on it around 2013, there's no like actual information about when he gave up on it. Mm-hmm. But uh, 2013 was the year that he created... Probably his most successful venture called Magnesis. So Magnesis was a company aiming to create a kind of black card experience for millennials with social perks like club membership, access to the townhouse that was their base that he was renting, discounted tickets to events by their sponsors, etc., etc., It was mainly advertised as a way to network and get plugged in with other status-oriented millennials in New York and to be a part of basically the cool club, make friends with all the popular kids. And all of this for just $250 a year. Mm Mm-hmm. So the thing is, on the one hand, networking opportunities like Club Amasip, on the other hand, how much pizza could I legitimately buy for $250, okay? And Listen, things- I'm just going to say $250 is like one month of my car payment right now. So the idea around Magnesis actually sounds really cool with all the the like membership stuff, the discounted tickets, the socializing And they had a townhouse where they hosted gatherings and parties for its members. And it was supposed to be used as like this communal workplace during the day. This whole venture was successful enough that he he actually got interviewed by several news stations and TV shows about his card. And I I watched one of these interviews and I can kind of see why he got successful. He is very charismatic and can sell this really flimsy idea really well. This company is also where he started his partnership with Ja Rule, 
who acted as the face of his company. He also met his future business partner, Grant Margolin. I might be saying this name completely wrong. Well, I'm going to call him Grant from now on. So Grant was a Magnesis member, which is how he met Billy McFarland. So it sounds like this really cool thing seems really successful. Uh, However, Magnesis also offered a lot of benefits that either didn't materialize or were way out of their budget. One example I remember hearing about was um, it advertised VIP tickets to see Hamilton for $430. And then those tickets were canceled last minute. Which, I mean, at the time, Hamilton tickets were more expensive, so it is kind of a little bit of a deal. But the tickets were canceled last minute. Likewise, Magnesis tried to sell exclusive tickets to concerts that they didn't actually have. And so people that got ripped off from this have commented about never receiving a refund and being ignored when they tried reaching out to the company about the issue. This will become more relevant later, so just kind of bookmark this information for the Mm -hmm. future. So going off of Magnesis, Billy McFarland and Ja Rule eventually established a new company they called Fire Media, and they began talking about their new Fire Music Booking app. This was essentially supposed to kind of be like an Uber or a Tinder for music, So it it would connect clubs, concerts, music festivals, what have you, with artists so they could be booked for gigs more easily. Which, again, really cool idea. Yeah, conceptually very strong. Conceptually. The actual execution is where we get into trouble, as you are about to see. pattern with with this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The execution. Execution, not so great. Yeah, needs needs work. (laughs) So to promote the Fire Music app, they organized what we now know as the Fire Festival for April 2017. They envisioned this festival after stopping on Great Exma Island in the Bahamas to refuel during a flight. And the idea was that the festival would be this high-class, exclusive festival with all these Instagram models and celebrities and musicians and the influencers and all those people. Like, all the people that aspirationally you're meant to want to be. Yeah, all the people that you would want to be and want to be seen with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All, All on this remote island, so... It would be more of an immersive event. Like you would go to this remote island and the entire thing would just be the festival. Well, from the get-go, it was kind of a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) How you didn't, you just didn't sugarcoat that one. There was no easing into it. You're like, you know what? No. This was a mess. It was a mess from start to finish. I'm just going to be honest. They had a fantastic advertising plan. I'm not afraid to admit that their advertising was so good. So the whole thing with their advertising plan was that they got a ton of social media influencers like Kendall Jenner and Bella Hadid to post about the event. 
I think it started out with all of them posting this like orange square and hashtagging Firefest or something along those lines. Just a really good way of catching attention. Like this Instagrammer is just posting an orange picture. Why are they posting this? Mm-hmm. And like it was wasn't it coordinated? So basically, your entire Instagram feed just became orange. Yeah, orange picture was the idea. Yeah, it was super coordinated. So people started paying attention to this thing. And then they they also filmed this really cool promotional video on the island with a bunch of Instagram models, which made it look like this paradise on Earth. Like, the promotional video is so good. The whole aesthetic of it, the presentation of it was beautiful and um, really well put together, well designed. They got a really good film crew and a bunch of Instagram models to be in this picture or in this video. They took video uh, on like all different parts of the island, including like Pig Island, where they had like a bunch of pigs that the models would be amongst. Um, So it's really interesting stuff. And then on top of that, the models that were used for the promotional video posted pictures from just hanging out on the island while they were like filming this Mm -hmm. video using the hashtag and so that started going viral as well i feel like this is such a thing with influencer culture right now which is i'm sure you're gonna get into but that should been like because there's been a law change in the uk Mm -hmm. like this year that says if you are gifted something or you have a previous relationship with a company, so if they have gifted you something in the past yeah. or you have worked with them in the past, you have to outright state it on Instagram. Okay. And if you don't state that, you've broken the law in advertising law in England now. So like, if you post a picture of a cardigan that you're wearing and you're talking about like, oh, it's from, you know, it's from H&M and you don't say that you worked with H&M a year ago. Yeah. That you get hit with a fine, I think it is. I can see why that would be something, but also, like, that's kind of annoying. But yeah, like, when There's you're saying, just, like, like, aspects of it. Well, I was saying, like, with the photos, like, the fact that there were these photos of them on downtime and that actually fed into the advertising campaign, I think. Yes. Interesting. So, yeah, they, um, they posted a bunch of photos from when they were just hanging out on the island and... They had like a bunch of the Instagram celebrities and influencers post the orange tile at the same time and then share the promotional video as well. So mm-hmm. all of this was going viral mm-hmm. at the same time. And honestly, it sounds so simple, but it was super effective. And like, I have a friend, a real life friend who actually really wanted to go to this event after seeing all the influencers post about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I remember going and looking at the website. Like, I definitely remember going through it and being like, oh, wouldn't this be nice? And then seeing price of tickets and being like, you know what? I'm sure this will be fun. But sadly, I need to know that what I actually (laughs) thought was, I'm going to look forward to seeing the pictures later. Yes. Well, you definitely did enjoy the pictures. I did enjoy the pictures. Just in a very different way. Yeah, it's been a different way than how I thought I would. Now, the price is also what got my friend not to go as well, which I'm really glad for that. Yeah, yeah. To talk about. But speaking of prices, 
day tickets were sold for prices of between $500 and $1,500. Wait, wait, day, day ticket. Day tickets. As in like, as in, as in one, as in one day. Yes. As in 24 hours. Yes. Okay, cool, right. Yep. And then there were VIP packages, which included airfare and luxury tents, which sold for $12,000. And in, see, this is, this is the thing, Ali. If we had not gotten arts degrees, we... We could afford this! We could, we could definitely afford this. That's definitely <laughs> the, the, only, the only thing stopping me from affording a $12,000 festival experience is my degree. Well, in this case, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with having to miss this event. So, continuing on. (laughs) These prices were ridiculous, and part of that is because... So, promotion said the festival was going to be held on a remote private island. Mm -hmm. In actuality, most of the islands Billy considered for the event ended up turning him down. Yes, I'm not surprised. Hello, mm-hmm. can we invite thousands of rich wealthy, people. rich people who are expecting like like Coachella but fancier to your island for you know a, yeah. a while? Because wasn't it like two consecutive weekends? And it was it better. was it was two consecutive weekends, I believe. So yeah, can we can we just come down for like I mean there's gonna be people there for the two weeks, but then there's gonna be people for all the rest of the time. And um so why 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 are you closing the door? Why are you closing the door in my face? Look, look, Wait, please, back. sir. Sir, come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So most of them most of them ended up turning him down, probably in a similar conversation to what we just had. Yeah. But uh he did manage to briefly lock down Norman's K, which okay. was Formerly owned by Pablo Escobar. However, the deal that kind of locked down this island included the clause that Escobar's name couldn't be used in any of the marketing. I mean, yeah. Makes sense, right? Yeah. I feel like, you know, this one thing. They're giving you a whole island. Yeah. And they ask you this, this one thing which you definitely do not manage to keep because Pablo Escobar's name showed up in the initial promotional video. Oh, it was on like every single like promotional material thing yeah. that I saw. It was like a whole big thing. Like they were really pushing the fact that this was an island owned by Pablo Escobar. Um, what, did he, what did he do when he signed that contract? Was he like crossing his fingers behind his back? No idea. That, like, Honestly. Okay, so I crossed my fingers so it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when Pablo Escobar's name showed up and all this promotional stuff, the deal was obviously called off. Yeah. And so they had to find a new location for this festival just two months before the event. Again. Definitely not the point at which you might want to have a meeting where you discuss your options. No, definitely also not a point where you have to be, you know, open and honest with the people paying for these tickets, being like, we're experiencing some difficulties. Just keep barreling ahead. Just go yeah. for it. Just pretend everything's fine. It's it's that meme where you're sitting in the burning room and you're saying this is fine. Yeah, exactly. 
So the Bahamian government eventually did give him a permit to use a development site at Roker Point on Great Exima Island mm-hmm. next to the Sandals Emerald Bay Resort. Mm-hmm. Well, you would think at this point, like they would, they would tell people, "Hey, our location moved." They did not. I mean, that's too honest. That's too. Yeah. Instead of owning up to the move, the uh, fire marketing team cropped promo photos to make it look like the site was on a private island. I feel like again, there is nothing questionable about that. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, that's definitely everybody crops photos yeah um, just just whack a filter on it it'll be lovely <laughs> <laughs> everyone cuts off the entire rest of the island that you're staying on and, yeah. and everyone also makes it look like there's a beach within walking distance when there actually isn't honestly i yeah this is the point at which i really struggle to see how and I get that I'm not in that situation why you would not, as a person, bow out to save yourself yeah. at this point. Well, well, there were a lot of other points like this where I would say the exact same thing. This is the point at which you nope out. You're like, you yeah. know what? Been lovely working with you. And you say that as you back up rapidly. <laughs> I need to go immediately. Just like, not, not even an excuse, not even like a cover story. You're like, you know what, I just have to go. I just have to leave. Actually, sorry, um, my mum, I, I call my mum to check and she says I can't be here with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> my mum said no. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh, uh, gosh. Well, so this event was scheduled to happen in April. Mm-hmm. In March 2017, they hired a veteran event producer who immediately saw that it was impossible to hold such a large-scale event at the site they were given. Festivals take so much infrastructure. Yeah, and um, there was actually some talk about postponing the event to November. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the fire team decided to hold the event that April anyways, so... Go for it! Yeah, you you got one month to figure it out. It's fine. It's all going to be totally mm-hmm. fine. At this point, 5,000 tickets for the event had already been sold. And um, an air service was hired to charter people from Miami to the island. The producer, the event producer they hired, told them that tents were the only accommodation that could be delivered for that amount of people in the time remaining. And... He advised Billy to make this fact known to those who'd already bought tickets. Mm -hmm. The company told him an email was being prepared, but obviously it was never sent out. Yeah, because like, what was it? What was the accommodation preference that people thought they were getting? They were supposed to be like glam tents, like glamping (laughs) is what it's called, where it's like real fancy camping mm. yeah i've seen pictures of that kind of thing and i like it because it's camping for people who don't like camping or rather yeah. like people like me who are traumatized <laughs> by years of family camping holidays <laughs> they they got those tents in and 
Billy McFarland also, this was also a really bad idea. So he chose to hold the festival on the same day as Eczema's annual national family regatta, which one local in one of the one of the documentaries, I think it was the Hulu one, mm-hmm. said this event was bigger than Christmas to the Bahamians. So this yeah. also made lodging and transportation kind of scarce. Yeah, because as we know, events like that don't get booked up massively in advance. Like, yeah. who knows when? I think this episode is probably going to air after this period. But for example, like Golden Week is coming up in a month or so in Japan. And it will be the longest golden week on record. It's 10 days because the emperor oh, wow. and the emperor is abdicating the throne across the golden week. And in Japan, there is some kind of legal thing that says you can't have a certain gap between holidays. So they just fill it all in. Ah. So because it's, all in, it's 10 days. Off. So I literally last night was trying to organize because I realized I'd already been saying I wanted to take an overnight trip, like one overnight trip one night it was super difficult trying to find a room because I've left it so late. Yeah. And that's for like a 10 day holiday where there are multiple people and there's multiple, you know, there's more than one location in Japan that I could have gone to. And I was still struggling because the entire country, that is like their big holiday. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So I, yeah, I can imagine that because things have been booked up in like, months and months ago have been booked up yeah so I, I imagine the same thing happening here yeah absolutely there's also a lot of transportation services which did not run during this time yeah uh, which also made it kind of scarce yeah so, so infrastructure there were a lot of problems going into this yes. really nobody learned no any of these no and um in addition to all of these, like, booking and physical problems, like the tents, Billy McFarland also kept running into uh, money problems. You just remind me how much the tickets were. Okay. Be- A day pass went from $500 to $1,500. Okay. And he sold, like, 5,000 tickets overall at this point. Yeah. And some of those were also VIP passes, which were $12,000. Oh, yes. Some of these were the 12000 ones. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can completely see how you would run out of money because you yeah. didn't—you clearly don't have enough there. Clearly not. But with everything going on with the uh, marketing, because they spent a lot on the mm-hmm. marketing, and then all the services and getting an island and all of that, he and then did how still... to get a new island because we couldn't uh-huh. keep our yeah. we, we couldn't keep the first island because we had to include Pablo Escobar's name. But yeah, he kept running into money troubles with all this. And uh, this is where stuff begins to get criminal. Ooh. Yeah. So far, so far, it's all just been like... So far, just... all of this is just really bad planning and yeah. absolutely yeah. terrible ideas and decisions. Yeah, it's about to get illegal. He kept looking for sponsors for this event in order to pay for any everything. Okay. Um... One one sponsorship he was really trying to get was a sponsorship from Comcast Ventures, which was they were considering investing $25 million into the Fire Music app 
And in an in an attempt to cement this deal, uh, Billy McFarlane's falsely valued Fire Media at $90 million. So he told them that his company was worth $90 million. How much is it actually worth at this point? Not that much. Well, he um he didn't quite manage to do it okay. because he wasn't able to provide sufficient proof of this claim, and so Comcast ended up declining the deal. Mm-hmm. That was just one investor. He did this with a number of other investors, and many of them actually provided financial support at various times. During the creation of this festival. Wow. So, in some cases, he was able to pull it off. In other cases, he was not. Yeah. It all depended on the company and how much proof they wanted, apparently. Yes. And um, after Comcast turned him down, uh, McFarland was able to obtain temporary financing through... An investor named Ezra Bernbaum. Okay. Uh, but he was also required to repay at least half a million of the loan within 16 days. That, yeah. 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 That's, that's kind of not a good situation for him to be in. Yeah. I'm saying. Um, so it was... It was around this time when he was told he had to repay it uh, in 16 days. He's like, fine, but he's like, you know that um, reaction image where he's just like sweating and it's like a waterfall. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was around this time that uh, the fire team told guests that the event would be cashless and cardless. So they weren't going to be able to pay with cash or credit card or debit card at the actual event. Mm -hmm. Instead, they would have to pay $1,500 in advance on a digital fire band to cover cost. So it was going to be like this, this bracelet that they would wear that had their money on it that they could use. Okay. That was the idea. Again, I don't think there's anything that could ever go wrong with that. No, no. I can't think of anything. There's, there's like, absolutely no way that he would take the money, put on those bands, and use it to repay his loan. No, what are you talking about? (laughs) So, yeah, every guest had to pay an advance of $1,500. And then on top of that, Billy McFarland also suggested they upload... Around three hundred to five hundred dollars for every day they plan to attend. That's a lot of money. A lot of money, and I think it's pretty obvious he was trying to repay this loan with that money. Yeah. The timing of it makes me think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what makes me think it even more is that there was a lawsuit later filed by Burnbaum, which according to this lawsuit the money guest uploaded onto these bands was used to pay off the short-term loan. It's, so, almost, it's almost like we keep financial records almost, of transactions. Yeah. We can trace where money goes a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So 
officially legally my thoughts on this money being used for the loan is in the system um sorry i feel like the last couple of minutes you've just the only reaction you're getting from me is me just saying the word yeah in increasingly defeated sounding tone (laughs) i'm about to make it sound a little bit more defeated because uh this this decision by him this using money to pay off a loan from like money from other people to pay off a loan this is very similar to uh what some employees working under mcfarland for mcnesis has speculated he was doing for their offered benefits aka some of them guessed that he was using money from mcnesis members buying tickets like the exclusive hamilton tickets and all that Mm -hmm. to pay off business debts and then not providing the actual benefits so this whole having them pay for something and then using that money to pay off his own business debts and not following through with what he said is not a new thing so it's, yeah it's very clearly a pattern i feel like again i keep just saying the word yeah in increasingly defeated tones i don't know what to say and it reminds me of when i watched the documentary because i was like watching it and it was funny until about halfway through and then i just got increasingly astounded yeah uh both documentaries kind of capture it really well Mm -hmm. um they take very different angles and talk about very different things and all together i just felt so hopeless watching it i was like how is this even how did he think this was a good idea I don't know about you, but I get the sense with him that he genuinely did think this was a good idea. This was a solution. He thought this was a good idea, and he felt absolutely confident in it. And I just don't understand how he could think that. God give me the confidence of a mediocre white man in business. Uh, Yes. Yes. My God. Okay. So we are past the planning stage for this event. The whole financial stuff was like a continuous thing through the planning process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we finally arrived to April 27th when guests begin arriving on chartered flights from Miami to Exma. So we are at the event. We are about to see Lord of the Flies happen here. About to be live blocked as well. <laughs> because yes. do you remember like Instagram and Twitter and people were tweeting and people were like oh, absolutely all every new picture that came out was just a new revelation. <laughs> it was amazing and terrible at the same time. I'm just gonna say that the event planners knew this was about to be a bust. Was it a bust? You'll have to find out in part two. Dead Cat on the Line is written and produced by Ali Drain and Sarah Caulfield. Sound editing is done by Ruth Brown. For more information, you can find us at Dead Cat Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. No cats were harmed in the making of this podcast. We even have a real live one. You can see him on our social media pages. Thanks for listening.